Welcome to the Grace Life Fellowship Podcast. This past Sunday here at GLF, our lead pastor, Tim Chalice, started a two-part series called Practical Grace. Today, we'd like to share with you the first part in that series called The Rest of Grace. Okay, here's Tim. I thought it would be a good mini-series, two-part series, to do something called Practical Grace. Frank has just finished this incredible study of Galatians where the Apostle Paul has been our champion of grace. He's been fighting and pushing back the darkness and the, the rigors of legalism, and, and he's fought well for us. And then I thought, what do we do after that? What do we do with what Galatians has shown us? And you know, I, I couldn't help but leave these messages and think, where does it relate to us on a daily basis? Where is grace not so much theological, though of course it has implications there, and, and I'm a firm believer in our theology is going to affect our psychology. The, the way we think about God and, and how he thinks about us is going to affect how we live. It's going to affect how we relate, not only to God, but to others. And so I wanted to bring out this practical idea of grace. Um, you know, grace is, is a, a big idea in terms of the church. I hear people say all the time, well, y'all talk about grace too much. And as we look at what grace really is, I want you to kind of track with me that there is no such thing as too much grace. There, there is such thing as not enough grace. We've all experienced that. There is no such thing as too much grace. And so there's going to be, this going to, these next two weeks is a, is a series titled Practical Grace. Today will be the rest of grace. And that has kind of a double meaning. I think a lot of Christians believe that grace is something that God offers us before we come to him, that there's nothing we can offer. So God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone. We agree with that. But then as Christians, how do we grow in our relationship with God. And this is where I say the church sometimes has been missing the mark in terms of growing by the same grace that led us to Jesus. Meaning Colossians 2.6 says, just as you came to him, so walk in him. So the same grace that brings you to Jesus is the same grace that grows you in Jesus. It's all his doing. So that's the rest of grace. And then what it leads to is, the rest of grace, that I, I can cease in my striving. I can cease to try to find a purpose and find a name for myself. You know, this has been an age old problem. We are looking for an identity. And the more I talk with people, you know, since, since Jay Patel, our youth minister has come online, we have been having all these conversations. Jay, Jay and I will talk about this. And it's been amazing to be reminded in this refreshing way as we dialogue that this is all about grace. We come back to the very basic idea of who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. So the next message next week, which I would highly encourage because it's going to be the, this, this rubber meet the road. Today is the rest of grace. Next week will be the test of grace. What happens when we are tested? What happens when we get tempted? How does grace matter? How is it practical when real life is happening? That'll be next week. So I had some thoughts about grace that I just want to share with you. I want to kind of just 
inundate you with this. I want to just kind of let you take a drink, as Frank would say, from a fire hydrant about what grace is and what it isn't. Grace does not lead to sin or give us a license to sin. Grace is not the excuse for when we sin. It is the empowerment not to sin. Grace does not need to be balanced. Grace doesn't need to be overcorrected. Grace does not mean behavior does not matter. Grace is what, is what makes behavior matter. Grace is not a part of the gospel. It is the gospel. Grace does not mean God looks past your sin. It means he did something about it. Grace means you are not too far gone. Grace means that no matter what you have done, sitting here this morning, it's not too late. There is nothing that you have done that grace is not greater. Grace means there's hope. Grace allows us to move forward instead of staying stuck. Grace means that right now, right this moment, is a very new beginning, a brand new start. Today is a new day, and tomorrow now has a new hope. Because of grace, David, some of these great heroes of the faith, David moved from a murderer to a man after God's own heart. Because of grace, Paul was a persecutor and moved to become a preacher. Because of grace, Peter went from denier to declarer of Jesus. If there's hope for people like that throughout the scriptures, and that's just a few examples, there's hope for us. Because of grace, you are not a lost cause and you have not gone too far. You have not done too much. It is not too late. Because of grace, what haunts you does not have to be greater than what heals you. Because of grace, we move from rules to relationship. Because of grace, we move from law to love. Because of grace, we, we go from fear to freedom. Because of grace, we go from trying to trusting. Grace is not just a doctrine. Grace is not just a belief system. Grace is not just a lifestyle. Grace certainly isn't just something we say before a meal. Grace is the whole meal. Grace is the person of Jesus Christ. Grace is a dynamic of a relationship with the living God. I want you to look at this, this verse. It's Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Now think about that for a second. The grace of God has appeared to the world, and the grace of God brought salvation to all men. Is that a belief system? Is that just a doctrine? Is that just a theology? Is that just something ethereal or super spiritual? Or is that active and present and real and tangible? Grace appeared. We could behold him. We could see him. We could see the finished work and what grace accomplished and what did accomplish. It brought salvation to all men. And what does grace do? What does Jesus do? He instructs us to deny ungodliness. Do you see grace isn't just an excuse for sinning, it's the remedy of sin. He denies us, he, he teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly right now. It's practical because this relationship is real. We see in John chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. 
Contrast to that, grace was not given through Jesus Christ. He didn't hand us grace like Moses handed us the law. He didn't give us a set of rules in grace to live by like Moses gave us a set of rules in law to live by. Jesus, it says, helps us realize grace and truth through him. And what do we realize? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, by his doing, that's grace. By his doing, he has become our wisdom. You are in Christ. The way you got right with God was not by you doing anything, but by you being in Christ and his grace, his all-sufficient life being gifted to you so that by his doing, you are now in right standing with God. And that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, by his doing, he has become our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And we start to see this whole Christian life in a very different way. Rather than us pursuing God and his goodness and his mercy and his grace, we see as the psalmist said, as David said in Psalm 23, he said, surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. This Christian life is not us pursuing God so hard, it's letting him catch us, that we receive from him. So we don't have to try any longer to be okay with God. He made us that way. He has become the one who accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. It's practical and it's real. And when we start to believe this through the lens of grace, when we view God, when we view life, when we view ourselves, when we view this relationship with him, through the lens of grace, we see who we really are. We start seeing what God says about us rather than how we have acted and let that determine it, or what others' opinions are and let that determine it, or what circumstances do to us and let that determine it. We start to look at God in a different way, and when we see him for who he really is through the lens of grace, we see us for who we really are through the same lens. And this has been an issue for man ever since the fall. Ever since the garden, ever since Adam and Eve usurped this relationship with God by being deceived and by disobeying, man has been floundering in trying to find his own identity, his own significance, his own purpose, his own worth. We've been trying to make ourselves matter and count right here on this planet, not by receiving anymore, but now by achieving and hoping it's good enough, and it never is. For even if you could achieve good enough for today, tomorrow's coming and somebody better's coming. And so when we try to find our identity in anything that we can do, it's gonna be futile and it's gonna be exhausting and there will be no rest of grace. You remember the story of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11? We're going way back. In Genesis chapter 11, you know the story, they're, they're building this tower unto God, unto the heavens. But do you, do you know their purpose in doing it? It says, they, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city. I want you to notice it says for ourselves. And he says, a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. That was their point. Man, since the fall, has been trying to name himself by doing great things. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad to the face of the whole earth. And I want you to notice, you know how that story ended, right? What did God do to the tower? He tore it down 
because he's so mean and vindictive and punitive and harsh and, and exacting and demanding? Is that why he tore it down? Or did he tear it down because God is committed in his love for each one of us to tear down anything that we would try to build up that would keep us to try to, that would make us to try to name ourselves rather than receive a name from God himself? You know, it's the right of a parent alone to name their child. In this case, our father has the only right to give us a name so that all of our achieving and striving and that delusion of trying to make ourselves matter will go away. When, when Catherine and I decided to have kids, I say only a parent gets to name their kids. Actually, in our case, it was only Catherine. She told me right away. She knew she wanted three kids and she knew what their names were. And I said, do I get a choice in any of this? She goes, sure, you can agree. But, but in the sense of naming a child, only the parent has that right. My kids come to me all the time. Dad, did you see me kick this ball? Did you see me draw this picture? Do you see the grade that I made? What do you think about me? Oh, my, my whole life to them and ministry to them and my whole parenting of them is to convince them, and I don't do this perfectly and at times not even well, but my whole heart towards them is that they would so know that there's nothing they can do that can make me any more pleased or with them or love them any greater or love them any less because I love them simply because they're mine. What if God is doing the same thing for us all the time, every second of every day? What if the Holy Spirit resides within us for the express purpose of testifying, as Romans 8 says, that you are his child? This is what he is committed to. And so we see that only a, a parent has the right to name their kid, and only God has given that right, has that right. John chapter 1, verse 12, but to as many as received him, not achieved anything for him, to as many as received him, he gave the right to be called a child of God. You know, when we come to Jesus, we talk a lot, especially in the counseling arena, about giving up our rights so that we can live in the freedom of being blessed rather than achieving blessings. The only right I see that God says we have the right to hold on to is whatever he has named us. So no matter what this world throws at you, no matter what the enemy accuses you with, no matter what the horrors of your flesh patterns may be, only God has the right to name you and he has called you his child. This is where the rest comes in. This is where we, we start to understand something you have heard many times. And even as I'm gonna put this up here for you, many of you will say, Tim, we know that. Ad nauseum, we know this. We hear this all the time. We hear it all the time here at Grace Life. It can be so, so heard and so familiar to us, we can miss its power. This is what Jay and I have been talking about in, in the office over weeks in terms of one simple but incredibly powerful truth that we have a new identity. And that new identity is that we are saints and not sinners. And I want you to think about this with me for a second. If God says that you are a saint and not a sinner, do you realize you have moved from this distant relationship with God and you have been brought near to him through the finished work of his son because a sinner is somebody who is separated from God? That's the biblical definition. 
Romans 5 says a sinner is anyone born in Adam because in Adam we became sinners. And all you had to do to become a sinner was show up. You were born that way. Then all you had to do was act in it and prove it. But your actions didn't make you so, they just proved it so. But most people's, most Christians' definition of a sinner is someone who sins. If the definition of a sinner is someone who sins, then we would all be sinners because we still sin. But that's not God's definition. And it's important because if I believe I'm a sinner, then I can't rest in this new identity of being called his child. Can you be a child of God and a sinner? It's an oxymoron. It's like saying seriously funny. It's like saying adult male. It doesn't make sense. It won't go together, for one cancels out the other. It would, it would be, last night I was watching the, the, I'm a huge Astros fan, not in stature, in heart. And I'm watching the game last night, and they, they win and get to go to the World Series on a walk-off home run. And it's like 11.30 at night, it's late, everybody's asleep, and I literally jump out of the bed like a four-year-old kid Back, back where, when I'd grown up in Houston rooting for the Astros, I jumped out of bed and I screamed at the top of my lungs and, and I caught myself that everybody's asleep. I look like an idiot. I'm supposed to be asleep too, it's late. But this, this childlikeness, I, men don't grow up, they just get older. But it, it was fun. But, but, but to say that we are sinners instead of children of God. To say that we are sinners saved by grace is an oxymoron. It's like me saying I'm a married single person. It doesn't make sense. And you say, Tim, but we hear this all the time. Where does it really matter? Where does the rubber meet the road? Does it really impact how I'm living? The way you think about yourself affects how you live. Proverbs 23, seven says, as a man thinks within himself, so he will be. What you think about yourself or what you think God thinks about you hasn't what you think others think about you determine some of your actions, behaviors, and feelings. Sure it has. So when we believe what God says about us, it will determine how we live. And he's not saying that you are separated from him. He's not saying that you are distant from him. He's not saying that you are unpleased by him. He's not saying any of that. He's saying, I have finished the work. I have brought you near to me so fully that there's no distance between us. There's no, there's no chasm between us and God anymore. There's no point for you to try to do the right stuff over and over in order to get closer to God. It's too late. Jesus did all that it took to bring you to him. And his finished work is a gift to you. That's why Romans 5 says that when we receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, I always thought righteousness was an activity. God says it's a gift. Open and use the gift. It says when you do that, you will reign in life through Jesus Christ. How much of your mental thinking, how much of your day is inundated with lies that say you're not good enough? That you won't, you won't measure up or that somebody's better or that you'll never be pleasing? or that if anybody else was in your position, they'd be better at it. How much of your thinking has that in it? Accusation and lie and insufficiency, all of that is, is predicated, is based in the idea that we're not enough, that we've gotta make up ground with God, 
that we've got to do something more in order to be okay with him. And the horror of it all is that we thought it was God telling us that in order to motivate us to get closer when actually it's the enemy that does that. It's the enemy that's telling the child of God he's not good enough, she's not good enough. It's the enemy accusing the brethren and disguising himself as an angel of light, making you feel inadequate when God says he's your sufficiency. He's your all in all. You are a brand new creation, 2 Corinthians says. You're not made better. It doesn't mean you're acting any better yet. It means you have been made brand new. God is not into self-improvement. God is not into making something old and making it better. He's into taking something old and killing it and raising something brand new up. If any person be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. When we start to believe this, we start to see through this lens of grace who we really are. We also start to see who God really is because how good is a God that can take us and make us that? We are saints, not sinners. And as basic as that is, it's foundational to moving forward. There is no distance between you and your God. There is nothing lacking between you and Jesus Christ. He's not going to accept you any better or any more if you read your Bible more today. He's not going to be any more pleased with you if you do all the right things today. He's not going to love you more if you get it right today. It's too late for God to love you anymore, be any more pleased with you, or accept you. He did all of that by his doing in Jesus Christ. We now get the, the rest of enjoying that, to receive it from him. When we say that we are sinners saved by grace, we treat Jesus like a travel agent who changes our itinerary, but not our identity. I lived a lot of my Christian life right there. Oh, Jesus saved me, but I'm still a sinner on my way to heaven. But one day, one day I'll get to go to heaven. And I never realized that what Jesus really did when he saved me was he brought heaven into me. He brought himself to reside within me. And it didn't just change where I'm going, it actually changed who I am. This is the truth for every child of God. And it's by his doing. Not only that, we have been given a new heart, a new seat of desire, one that is now connected to him, one is, that is now in concert with God. Your desires deep within you are totally compatible with Jesus Christ. There's not a one of us in Christ that want to do anything that Jesus doesn't want us to do. I didn't say that we don't we're not weak and we're not susceptible and we're not vulnerable, that we can still mess things up. I didn't say that we can't do those things that Jesus doesn't want. I said we don't want to do those things that Jesus doesn't want. That's proof of a new heart. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. Ezekiel says, moreover, more than just forgiving you, because that's the previous passage, he says, moreover, I will give you a new heart. This is a promise in the Old Testament. That when Jesus comes and he finishes his work, you won't just get a change of destination. You'll, you won't just get a change of identity. You'll get a change of heart. You don't need to change your heart. In fact, I would say you can't change your heart. It's got to be changed for you. That's why it's a gift. 
Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone. That's that wicked, evil, apart from God heart that Jeremiah 17 talks about. It's deceitful above all things. There was nothing you could do about it. Even if you could do the right behaviors, but had a wicked heart, you would be in trouble. You would be, just be changing the externals, but nothing for the internal. This is why Jesus tells the Pharisees, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, he says, you are dead men. You are whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside. You're doing all the right stuff, but that heart is wicked. Jesus was driving them to their understanding of a need for him as a savior to change who they are, not just what they're doing. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh, a pliable, a malleable heart with God, one that's fertile for him, one that is in concert with him. Your heart is, uni is united to God's heart. He is fused together with you at the seat of your desires. This is why when we test that, when we go with something we feel rather than what we truly desire, why it never works out for us. Oh, it might bring a temporary something, but it never brings fulfillment. It never brings contentment. It never lasts past the moment. One way or the other, God's gonna prove to you he gave you a new heart. And he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That God will be the power of what he calls us to. That God will be the dynamic of his own demand, the source of his own image. That God will be the cause of his own effect, as Major Ian Thomas used to say. God in you is the one who is faithful, and he also will do it. Do what? Whatever he has called you to. So that the rest of us in grace is simply to rest in his grace. God, whatever you have called me to, you will do it. Not by, me, not by me being passive and inactive, by me participating in understanding that I am a new creation, that you reside within me, and I have been given a new heart. I'm active as I believe this. I'm active as I receive this. I'm active as I express this. We've been given new desires. Not one of you sitting here this morning wants to sin. Would you agree with that? Have you ever felt like you wanted to sin? Have you ever been tempted? Have you ever gone more than just feeling like it and being tempted? Have you ever succumbed to it? Have you ever given into it? Have you ever bought into whatever was tempting you? And then what happened? Then what were your desires? That's for next week. That's the test of grace. We're gonna see where this, this really meets the practical side and, and says, oh, I, I understand my new identity, my new heart, but what happens at the moment of impact when I'm being tested in it? We're gonna look at that next week. This week is still the, the rest of understanding that we have been given all of this. So we have a new heart. That's why Romans 6, 17 says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, this is who you used to be as a sinner. You were a slave to sin. Sin mastered you. It owned you. It dominated you. You had no say. No matter what you did, no matter how good it was, no matter how good it looked, no matter how religious, you were still a sinner because you were a slave of sin. It says, but you became obedient. But watch what it says. You became obedient, not from anything you did, but from the heart. You became obedient from the heart. 
You realize what that means as a believer. The church has hammered for centuries. You need to obey. You need to obey. You need to obey. It should be hammering. You want to obey. You want to obey. That's what God placed within you. You are obedient from the heart. It's who you are. It's who he is in you. And you're not going to get away from it. You can test it all you want. All you're going to find out is it's true. So when we go around saying, you need, you need, you need, we're still living under the law of a demand rather than the realization of having been made that already. And you know what the law does? The law stirs up this power called sin. It actually accomplishes just the opposite of what it's demanding. The problem's not the law. The problem is this thing called sin. So what is God telling us? What is Paul telling us in Romans chapter six? That when you came to Jesus Christ, you were gifted with and blessed with a brand new heart. Now that's very different. Your desires are very different than how you feel at any given moment. I think we have just made a synonym of feelings and desires. And so we get really confused. I can feel a lot of things because the flesh has a desire that sets itself against the desire of the spirit. So I have feelings that happen all day long, but my feelings aren't telling me the truth about my desires. Sometimes they do, but a lot of times they don't. A lot of times my feelings are telling me something very different than what my heart is telling me. And the great deception that we'll see next week is when I go with how I feel rather than what I truly desire. We've been given a new heart. I don't need to be obedient, I am obedient. And that, when I believe it, will exercise its way out. It will affect its way out of me in expression. And I will start to live like who I am in him. And when we have a new identity and a new heart, we see that Jesus now gives us a new commandment. He doesn't leave us under the old commandment. You hear this all the time, we are under a new covenant, a new agreement between God really and himself that we are included in. And this new commandment is very different than all of the 613 old commandments. They were all telling a sinner to live a certain way, which that sinner never could. Because the purpose of the law was to reveal sin and then run to a savior. But Jesus, when we come to him, gives us a new commandment. Because now he is not fussing at the old man because the old man is dead and gone. He is encouraging the new man. He is, he is lifting up what he placed within us. And this new commandment is very different. It says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, not as yourself. That's the old commandment. That's as much as you love yourself, love somebody else. No more, no less. But if we're really honest, we never loved ourselves enough. There's always something about ourselves we hated. How many times have you said, I hate that about me? How many times do you make the list of what you should improve upon about you? God never makes that list. God knows that that list is ridiculous. He says, you didn't need improving when you were in Adam. <laughs> you didn't know who you were. It was worse than that. There was nothing to be improved upon in that condition. That needed dying. But then in my son, you've been made brand new. And God is not up there making a list every day saying, this is what needs to change about you, Tim. This is what needs to be improved about you, Tim. 
God is reading me the list of what he improved and changed about me. He's made me brand new. He's made you brand new. So this new commandment is love even as I have loved you. How is it possible? How is it probable? How can God in his right mind say that we can love with the same capacity and the same, the same love that he has? Except that he placed that in us. Except that he made us that. You realize these commands now are not so much prescriptions you know, we get prescriptions from doctors when we're not feeling well, and we go to the doctor and we go, something's wrong, I need, I need some help. And the doctor goes, let me prescribe you something and this will help you. We look at the commands just that way in the New Testament. Something's wrong with us, let me look at what God says to do and that will help me. That is not what the commands of the New Testament are telling the believer. They are not first prescriptions. They are actually descriptions. They are actually telling you who you are. Tim, love Catherine like Christ loves the church. That's not a prescription, not first. That's not telling me so much what to do as telling me what I want to do because of who I am. When I see the command that way, I see it not only as possible, but by faith I see it as totally probable. In fact, by faith, I see it as totally sensible and logical. This is why Romans 12 says, when we offer ourselves to God who's offered all of himself to me, then it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the only sensible, logical, reasonable thing to do. It makes total sense when I believe what God has done. So I have a new commandment that describes us more than it tells us what to do. Start reading the commands in the New Testament as descriptions of who you are because of what God has done before you read them as what to do. And watch your interpretation through this lens of grace cause you to rest. This is why in John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, he says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're exactly what you want to do because they're exactly who you are. Matthew 11, it says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my burden is light. Have you ever in your Christian life, is that how you lived? That these commands of God were light and easy and not burdensome? How many times have we failed the commands and then said, I'm trying my best, I'm trying my best, I don't know how to do it. How many books have we read? How many books have been written on how to do this? And then we see that Jesus is saying, I already did this. I did this for you. I've given you a new identity. I've given you a new heart. I've given you a new commandment that reveals who you are, not so much what you need to do. And then we can rest in the finished work. We can see that his commands are not burdensome when they're just telling you who you are and this is what you want to do. It took me some convincing that I wanted to love Catherine like Christ loves the church. I didn't think she always deserved it. I didn't. I was trying my best. I still fail at it, but at least now there's not the condemnation and that shame and that guilt that says I'm not good enough. There's the reminder when I go to that same command that I failed at that says, this is who you are, Tim. That's why you don't like when it doesn't happen. 
Oh, and by the way, the consequences are Catherine doesn't like when it doesn't happen either. That, that reap what I sow is a gift back to me to remind me that I can sow something different. I can sow life and the truth. Not to condemn me. Not to make me feel shame and guilt. Those are not tools of God for motivation to repentance or righteousness. Those are tools of the enemy to get us stuck in the sin. God has a tool that he uses. It's called love. That's how he compels us. That's how he motivates us. So I see that his, com his commands are not burdensome. And I think the healthiest approach is when we start reading the Bible more about what has been done than what needs to be done. Start reading the Bible like it's telling you what has been done more than what needs to get done. And watch yourself rest. And I want to close with a, a quote from a friend of ours, Steve Pettit, pastor down in Florida. He sends out a monthly newsletter and he sent this one and it just hammered home everything we've been saying. He says, all of our qualification and accreditation, all of our fitness and enoughness before God and others comes from the living spirit of God within us. He writes a resume of divine accomplishments upon our human spirits and hearts. He etches his godly character, pins his eternal words into our lives. He breathes the saving life of his son into our beingness. All to say that our deliverer, our teacher, our subject, our sufficiency is never a piece of chiseled stone or a page out of a holy book. It is nothing external but an ever-present person within us, the living spirit of God himself inside of us. In him and out of him, we have what it takes. Only in him and out of him do we have what it takes. It must become clear to all of us that our credentials come from the living spirit of God within us. The all-sufficient one alone makes us sufficient through the gift of himself. He is the strength of his own kingdom and he is enough. Father, may it be so for each saint here this morning that we would cease in our striving to be all that you want us to be. May we receive from you that you have made us all that you want us to be. May we rest in that, not in a passive way, Father, but in the most active way that from within us comes you. And Father, that out of that, this world will see your expression, your life in us. And Father, they will marvel at what you have done. And for those who don't know yet, Father, they might simply ask us and we would be ready to tell them our hope, our only hope, our significance, our all-sufficiency, our identity, our heart is all about you. Father, may you show that to each one of us to be the influence of those who are around us. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. That does it for today's episode. Remember to tune back in next Tuesday as we share the second part in this two-part series. And don't forget to join us again this Friday for another edition of Conversations in Grace with Jesse and Tim. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love for you to take a moment to share it on social media with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. We'll see you Friday.